Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of this podcast series by the Program in International Nutrition at Cornell University, or as we like to call it, the PIN Podcast. In this series, trainees in PIN interview leaders and rising stars in the field of international nutrition and global health. Today, our interviewers include myself. My name is Nidhi, and I'm a research aide. Hello, everyone. I'm Elizabeth, a graduate student. Well, and today on the podcast, we have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Mercy Langaho, who is also a PIN alumna. Dr. Langaho is a nutritionist and food science research scientist with expertise in nutrition-sensitive agricultural programming. Her research advocates for more attention to nutrition in the field of agriculture, which is too often separated from health. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Langaho. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. We are very glad to have you back at Cornell, although virtually. So um, to start us off, we would love to hear more about your earlier career trajectory or experiences, including your master's and PhD in food science and international nutrition from Cornell University. Well, I feel like I, I've talked about my career trajectory so many times. Uh, when I was an Aspen fellow, my Asp one of my Aspen speeches was about my career trajectory. And it's because uh, when I was born, uh, my mother was anemic, uh, I was anemic. Um, the doctors gave me 72 hours to leave. And the fact that I made it, my mother made sure I remember that every single time. So in Africa, when guests come to your house, you tell stories. So that's a story I would hear over and over again. But what it told me was my life had to have an impact. I had to make a difference. So from an early age, I, I used to wonder, how do we make a difference? So coming from Africa, if you want to make a difference, if you want to make your parents proud, it's your career choices. You're either a doctor, um, an engineer, or an architect. So I wasn't really interested in engineering or architecture, but I did have the grades and was interested in medicine. But, you know, I didn't have the aptitude. When children cried, I cried. When I saw blood, I threw up. So one of the professors encouraged me to do food science. And I used to wonder, what does this have to do with what I want to do? I wanted to be a pediatrician. I really wanted to be a psychiatrist, but my mom said, mm -mm, pediatrician is better. So I wanted to be a pediatrician to make my mother happy. And I was very unhappy in food science, first year and second year of university, until third year when we did human nutrition. And it clicked in my mind. I saw it. I said, this is how I make a difference for women and children. And I did so well in the third year that one of my professors came to me and said, you're going into your last year of undergrad, and I want you to think about going to graduate school fairly quickly. And I said, what, what do you mean? And he says, go and Google Ivy League schools in America. If you're not inspired, come back and talk to me. And I go in Google, and the first one that comes up is Cornell. And there was this beautiful picture on the screen. And I said, I'm going to Cornell. So uh, one thing led to another. I, I started to do my homework about Cornell and the schools and the professors. And I was really intrigued by the work that uh, Dennis Miller, Ray Glan, and Jerry Haas were doing at that time. It was around biofortification, iron nutrition, and those are the things that were of interest to me because of my background, having had anemia and that almost took my life. So my diets were in a row, lined up and I came to Cornell. I worked with Dennis Miller and Ray, under Ray Lang's lab and my focus was anemia, looking at foods for my master's 
the complementary foods that we're giving to children in Kenya and whether they had adequate iron, so iron bioavailability. And I was very disappointed by the work that I've, by the results that I saw to just see that the monotonous diet that we were consuming did not allow us to have uh, the right uh, iron status. Around the same time, the new kid on the block was biofortification. So uh, Dr. Glenn asked me to stay on as PhD to do studies on biofortified maize. And, uh, you know, that's when I started my interest on how do I link this with human nutrition and decided to take classes in nutrition. Um, by the time we were done with the PhD, I was thinking, well, this works in the lab. How would it work in real life? in an epidemiological setting. So there was a study in Kigali, Rwanda, that was being set up on iron bar fortified beans, and they wanted to run a randomized controlled trial. So I got the job. I went to Kigali to do the efficacy study. So that's how my career really started. Thank you so much for sharing all this with us. And coming back to the present day, as your role as a research scientist at International Institute for Tropical Agriculture, could you please tell us more about what your day-to-day -day life looks like and what does your job entail? Ah, that's an interesting question. I really honestly don't think about my day-to-day -day because I have a lot of structures in place that allow me to go on autopilot. However, there's seven things that drive what I do publications, program management, proposal writing, supporting capacity building. So day to day, I get to the office, I plan out my day, and then I support my team to get ready for what is ahead. And then I start my research. I love to work with people. I like to support my teams. So um, every day I look at what I expect from the teams or what I expect from the day. And then I go about supporting everyone that relies on me to know what it is they, they need to accomplish by the end of the day. And uh, I am able to support where they need my support. Then I talk to our partners around the world. So I have China, I have Germany, I have the US. Uh, and we agree on where we are at and uh, what needs to be done for the week. That's Monday. So I set up the week on Monday and I look at all the meetings we have to do during the week, as, especially now that we're doing data analysis, all the meetings that we need to do to achieve um, our objectives. Um, I meet with my supervisor every Thursday to just look through what we did during the week and plan what uh, moves on into next week. Uh, we have a lot of meetings, so I support a lot of meetings where we work with stakeholders to carry them along on what uh, is being done, but I also assess their capacities for what we anticipate to do. So if we're thinking of writing chapters or manuscripts, I'm looking to ask uh, what it is they can do well, what are the gaps that they have in their capacities, and how do I go about setting up um, mentoring time or activities that will help us to build their capacity. So basically that's it. I write a blog for my LinkedIn every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So that's the exciting part, uh, but fairly, I do the same thing over and over again, capacity building, uh, talking to people, helping them do what they need to do and then me doing what I need to deliver. I mean, this sounds like a very, very busy schedule and also feels like we could have another 
call just to learn up from you about organization skills and time management because it seems like you're always doing a lot of different things at the same time um so that was great and now i want to ask you because you have contact with so many different countries uh, and you you work with different partners at this some from the research implementation side and, and policymakers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder what is your what is your perspective in terms of the main challenges or key focus areas in the field of nutrition or international nutrition and global health? What are the main challenges? So one thing I do when talking to others is to try and simplify what I have to say. Um, I feel like we are trained to communicate scientifically, but we receive less training on how to talk non-science. Many of the people, practitioners we work with don't have the level of training that we do and don't use the same jargons that we do. So being able to communicate simply and clearly is very important. Another thing that I've found that is a challenge for many scientists is that in our minds, there's a way the world works, but in real life, there's a way the world works. Um, real life is about interests, Um, especially for politicians. It's about interests and um, resources that are constrained. So when you go to talk to them, you have to quickly get to the point and understand what's their interest, what are the constraints that they're facing, and how do I make what I want to say a priority. Nutrition is always and will always be a priority, but we're not always heard because we're not very good at packaging. So I've learned how to package what I need to say in a way that is attractive to policymakers, but they can quickly see what actions they need to take place. And then following up to be able to support them in when they're doing the implementation, to have the technical expertise that I have to make sure that everything goes as needed. There are very many ideas that they're given that they try to implement, but the impact is not visible. So in working with them, my main goal is to highlight the impact, big and small, uh, short-term and long-term, so that it captures their interest and they're able to continue to support programs and and, and, um, solutions as we move forward. So it's not enough to write publications and have your name out there. Really engaging with the stakeholders and co-creating with communities And following through, I feel, have been critical to my success and to the success of the communities I've worked in. That sounds, I mean, it it makes so much sense, not only to complement our training in a way to how do we package information, but also what you just say at the end about following through with what we say. A little bit taken from this answer or these questions and the previous one, you were talking before about capacity building and how this part of communication is, is not really into our a core skills when we're in the studying uh, in a PhD, for, for example. So I was wondering, what is your perspective or, or your approach uh, locally to uh, increase or, or to work in capacity building? What do you focus on or what are the tools that you suggest could be used? It takes a lot of time, but it really helps to mentor others. I shadow a lot of the people I want. To, I'm very intentional first about capacity building. And I'm also very clear about what capacity I want to build. Then I shadow the people I want to work with. I spend time with them. I spend, they spend time with me doing my work and I spend time with them doing their work. Then I get to understand where the gaps are. 
And then we do have an honest conversation about this is what I'll be able to offer. Is this of interest to you? Sometimes you can feel, build capacity, but people are interested in using that, uh, leveraging that improved capacity to really serve the community. One of the things I uh, request of the people I help is that they use all the capacities they improve and, and pay it forward. So mentoring, I think... Um, Mentoring and coaching, we don't do it as much, but I found them to be very effective. To be a mentor, you, you might feel like it takes a lot of time, and sometimes it could, but it's really helpful. People might not find it easy to come to you and say, could you mentor me? So to be intentional in looking for talent, and uh, I say, I know how to find the, uh, the X factor. Looking for that X factor and being intentional to say, you know, Somebody spent their time to mentor me. I'd like to use what I know and what I have to be able to build this skill in you. And this is what I hope you will use it for. So that has been very helpful for me, especially among young people today. So talking more about the mentorship and maybe going back to your days as a PhD trainee, what are some of the skills that you've gained during your PhD work that helped you in your current work? And maybe you could share some advice that you received and have held on to. <laughs> um, the PIN seminar to me was a kind of mentoring. Uh, and it's because, I don't know if it's the same during your time. In our time, it was tough. You had to bring your A game. You had to think. You know, it was it was very competitive among our cohorts, where you, you had to show that you were making, you were growing as a scientist, and that's what I brought with me. I continue to grow as a, as a scientist. I continue to inspire the people around me to grow. If you're not growing, you will not do well in my team. Uh, but if you know what you don't know, and you know what you know, and you're able to narrow the gap, then you'll make good progress in my team, and that's. Uh, something I was still at Cornell uh, when I came in and said this is overwhelming what do I do and they said learn what your weaknesses are learn what your strengths are then try and bridge the gap so I tell my team if you join my team know what you know know what you don't know and I'll help you bridge the gap so I feel like we're taking so many little like you know uh, important messages <laughs> from this conversation so everyone listening out there make sure you play this episode twice you may need to take notes uh, on some of the very good advice. And so I actually, we are, we are closing up. We're running out of time. And we have to let you also go to your seminar after this. So we have a tradition in this podcast, and that is to end up with a last question, which is what is the best thing and worst thing about your job? The best thing about my job is working with people and making an impact seeing the difference. When I see a policy and I know what evidence I generated that brought about that policy, to me, it makes me smile. Uh, the worst part about my job is really going to vulnerable populations and looking at the problems because you can't define problems that you have not seen. So when you look at children who are malnourished, when you look at communities who, who don't have enough food, like now in Kenya with the drought, facing that and looking how do I define this problem enough for a, a government to make it a priority. Sometimes that's heartbreaking. It, it takes a lot of energy. It, it's painful because you, you feel like the world is unfair. Then you, you think about what role do I continue to play to make the world more fair? And that's 
what I do. Well, we are so sad to let you go now, Dr. Longhao, and thank you so much for sharing all your insightful information with us. But before we let you go, do you have any advice for our listeners or graduate trainees in international nutrition? Uh, come to Africa. There's a lot to get done. We need the help. Awesome. So thank you so much. And thank you to the listeners of this podcast. Stay tuned for more insightful conversations with amazing researchers in international nutrition and global health. Thanks for listening.